I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. And it's been so hard to pick a favorite from this year's series and documentaries. Some of the things I've enjoyed watching in 2021 include the athletic scandal series Bad Sport, the rage-inducing conversion therapy documentary Pray Away, and the tear-jerking adoption stories in Found. What was one of your favorite Netflix series of 2021? One of our biggest podcasts had to do with a mystery at a downtown Los Angeles hotel. In 2013, college student Alyssa Lamb disappeared at the Cecil Hotel. We never saw her leave. And we communicated that to our peers, that we felt that she's still here somewhere. She never left the hotel. The disappearance baffled police and mobilized an army of internet sleuths with their own theories about surveillance tapes, likely suspects, and nefarious cover-ups. But as we found out in Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, it was just the latest in a string of bad acts in the building over the years. This story is part of a larger narrative that goes on and on and on, and it has been for the last 75 years. On December 29th, season two will premiere of Crime Scene, the Times Square Killer. But back in February, I talked with Emmy Award-winning and Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Joe Berlinger about the first season of his Crime Scene series. Let's listen again to that interview. Joe Berlinger, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you, Rebecca. Good to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so happy to talk with you, as always. I think the last time we spoke, I said that you were one of my uh, true crime idols. It's still true, Uh, by the way. Well, you're one of my (laughs) podcast idols, so there you go. (laughs) That's very nice of you. Now, I understand The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel is the first season of a new series under the umbrella crime scene, which is focused on locations. Tell me about putting locations in the center of true crime stories. I'm really interested in that idea. Yeah, well, we're we're trying to play with the format of of true crime a little bit, you know, and over the years, you know, I've leaned into stories of individual crimes or individual criminals, but never really looked at what a place is about and a place being almost an accomplice to the crime or perception thereof. So when I've done my past projects, for example, when I did Uh, the Ted Bundy tapes and also the Bundy movie with Zac Efron, you know, I often ask myself, what is it about the Pacific Northwest in the 70s that allowed a Ted Bundy to flourish uh, uh, and go undetected for so long? With Paradise Lost, for example, what was it about West Memphis, Arkansas in that time period, in that place that allowed people to jump to these crazy conclusions that these kids the teenagers, the West Memphis Three, had done these three horrific devil-worshipping murders when, in fact, there was virtually no evidence to connect them. And, you know, I touch upon it in the shows, but I didn't do a deep dive into a sense of place and geography and time period as contributors to crime. Actually, the Elisa Lamb story was brought to me by Josh Dean, a journalist who had written uh, quite a bit about it, and and he pitched us the idea of doing a an Elisa Lamb 
docu-series um, about the case. And while obviously the show is largely about that, I wanted to kind of pull out a little bit and really examine the place, the Cecil Hotel, its history of crime, its folklore of being spooky, uh, and really drill into that. Instead of just kind of doing a one-off docu-series on Elisa Lamb, we pitched to Netflix, and luckily they like the idea that let's do an ongoing series where each season we go to a different place and look at these questions and, of course, tether it to, you know, a, an a, a quote-unquote A story. So each season we'll be going and examining a different place and looking at a particular crime but in a larger context. So we thought that would be, I mean, for me who's done this for so long, I ha- you got to shake it up from time to time. So I, yeah. felt like, I felt like this would be a good way to shake it up. Now, you really have two places happening in this story, and that's really interesting to me because you have the hotel itself, which I want to talk about in a second, and then you also have Los Angeles, which is sort of the epicenter of a very specific kind of, you know, wave of very high-profile crime, some of them serial killers. I think of the Night Stalker, the Hillside Strangler, the Golden State Killer, uh, and then you have even further back in time, the Black Dahlia and all these, like, very sensational cases. You have that backdrop and you have the hotel. What about the city itself? I mean, did you think about Los Angeles as a character in this as much as I did when I was watching it? Oh, absolutely. You know, the that, that's part of this whole idea of, of analyzing the geography of a place and its socioeconomic policies that lead to, you know, a criminal element or the perception thereof. And, you know, downtown LA was once this incredible bustling Mecca. It was the place to go in the early decades of the last century. Uh, That's when the Cecil Hotel was built. Uh, But for many reasons, downtown LA fell into disrepair. There have been attempts to revitalize it. It's currently been revitalized. But Los Angeles hasn't quite figured out what to do with the huge Skid Row area that's been created through a lot of bad policies, you know, the policy of containment you know, where they just kind of wanted to drive people with mental health issues, people who are homeless, kind of drive people to downtown to be in the Skid Row area. Uh, These were some disastrous policies that led to that area falling into disrepair so that this once great hotel became this SRO, you know, single room occupancy kind of last resort place for people to stay who really don't want to be known, who can only afford cash, who can't do a credit check. Uh, That's kind of where the hotel ended up being um, until there was a a new owner who created a hotel within a hotel called Stay on Main, which we can get to in a minute. But generally speaking, (laughs) I think Los Angeles plays a big part um, as, as a center of storytelling you know, certainly helped aid and abet the kind of folklore quality that is attributed to the Cecil. And that's, you know, one of the underlying themes of the show and why I decided to do it is that, you know, we're not the first people to tell the Cecil Hotel story, you know, but most people or most other iterations of this have heavily leaned into, you know, the spooky, the spooky ghost story, the paranormal, none of which I believe in, uh, to me, that's disrespectful to the victim to dismiss this tragedy as just, uh, you know, a haunted house story. 
How much of the fact that this was a hotel do you think made people jump to those conclusions? Because I should say, to me, your documentary is more about what the Elisa Lamb story turned into uh, and sort of the crime of that, um, because it, to me, really was what happened to her story and how it was used for people to get YouTube views and so forth. But there is something about the setting of a hotel itself, the transient nature of people coming in and out of the place, the long, straight um, sort of narrow, symmetrical hallways. You know, every time I'm in a big hotel, I always think, wow, this would be a great setting for a scary movie. I think of The Shining. I think of even, you know, Psycho at the Motel, movies like Hostel, 1408. Do you think that it's because it's a hotel? Did that contribute to sort of the legend that these internet sleuths built around this story? Oh, absolutely. It's like the classic haunted house story. Um, the hotel is big and and has those deep long hallways as you talked about it's been around for decades because of the neighborhood fell into disrepair you know what was once a great hotel for business travelers became you know kind of a a, a place of last resort for people really down on their luck and so that kind of clientele people who you know either are hiding from others or don't have good enough credit to to rent an apartment and so they have to by a weekly room in cash, all of those elements contribute to really, you know, people for the most part being down on their luck. And when people are down on their luck, bad things happen. You know, they commit suicide out of despair. Um, It's full of clientele who don't want to get involved in other people's business because they're hiding out from their own uh, concerns in life. So when somebody like Richard Ramirez uses it, you know, the Night Stalker uses the hotel because A, it's affordable and B, it's full of people looking the other way. He knows he's walking into a place where everyone's minding their own business. So I think that contributes to uh, that kind of attractiveness. But, you know, you pick any hotel, I think you're going to find stories of despair. But it, it is interesting and true that this hotel had more than its fair share of dark happenings, but that doesn't make it haunted. Uh, although for me, there is a haunting, but it's, it's a different kind of a haunting than some spooky supernatural thing, which is what the Elisa Lamb case has been dismissed as by many. And to me, that's, what's dangerous is to, you know, think that some dark force overtook her or something like that. But, but in a place that big, in a place that has seen so many suicides and death and murders and, where serial killers have used it as a hangout, you know, it, it is a place of pain. And I believe just like when you go to Auschwitz or some other German death camp and walk the grounds, uh, or you go to any place where something tragic has happened, you know, you do feel uh, a certain energy of despair and negativity. Um, but I don't think it's a spooky force that can, you know, manifest itself in you know, making things happen uh, like a ghost. You know, that doesn't make sense. I have a question about the way you structured this documentary because you, I think, to the documentary's real credit, and this is one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much, you really let the web sleuth story be sort of the centerpiece of the middle of it. And then you spend the last chapter really 
debunking it and showing why it's dumb and irresponsible and not a cool thing that all these people were doing. Why did you choose that? Because I, is it because there was so much there with the web sleuths, the GPS coordinates, the video stuff? Is that why you did it or did you do it because you wanted to take them down at the end? Well, see, you know, some some aspects of your question, I, you know, I, I'm not I don't fully agree with, you know, you can't paint everybody uh, with a broad brush. Um, I don't think it's a takedown of the web sluice. You know, I think mm. the web sluice, it's a takedown of, of the knee jerk human capacity to embrace circumstantial evidence as truth, which is highly dangerous, particularly in the times that we live in now where there seems to be the death of objective truth. You know, we live in times where, you know, whoever presents you know, the most compelling narrative seems to be the purveyor of truth. What are what is a wrongful conviction? It's two competing narratives. And when the truth is not presented, it has dire consequences. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death row in the West Memphis three case because circumstantial evidence was presented to a jury. There was no blood at the crime scene, no forensic evidence. Uh, and yet that tale of devil worshiping was bought by the jury based on circumstantial evidence. So I know this is a long and complicated answer, but I'm not here to, with a broad stroke, say the web sleuths are bad because I think they're well intentioned um, for the most part. I think it was wrong to cyber bully, obviously, which is one of the themes of the show. It was wrong to cyber bully morbid without cold, hard facts. So the intention of the web sleuths, I think, were generally good. And in fact, it's a complicated issue because there have been cases where web sleuths have aided law enforcement, Absolutely. you know, armchair detectives, web sleuths, whatever you want to call them, people who are amateurs but are obsessed with a case have helped law enforcement at times. Um, even on in Paradise Lost, uh, these three people who had worked on the marketing campaign, the uh, woman named Kathy Bakken in particular, who did the poster for <laughs> HBO, for Par- so she got an advanced view of the movie, she and her friends became uh, obsessed with the case. They took time out of their regular jobs and created a website called Free the West Memphis Three. They found every piece of evidence that they could find, loaded it up on the website so people could see. And literally tens of thousands of people you know, just came and decided a terrible thing had happened to the West Memphis Three. And they took their vacation, you know, if they had a two-week vacation, they would time it for when the next appeal hearing was down in Arkansas and they'd go down and protest. All of that attention started to bring in the celebrities like Johnny Depp and Natalie Maines and Eddie Vedder. And, you know, all of that pressure, you know, helped produce the funding and the interest to reinvestigate the case, which ultimately Mm -hmm. liberated the West Memphis Three. So the movies get a lot of credit you know, the three Paradise Lost movies get a lot of credit for having gotten these guys out of prison. But, you know, and not to be falsely humble about it, but, you know, the movies obviously were a catalyst, but it's these amateur detectives, basically, who had a profound impact on that case. So I have seen a very positive version of this. But in this instance, you know, because of the folklore of the hotel and because of the, it, it is true, the coincidental preponderance of a tremendous amount of coincidence in this case, you know, what Josh Dean calls the synchronicities, you know, from the Lamb Eliza tuberculosis test uh, to the movie Dark Water to the registrar of the bookstore's website is the same town that Elisa Lamb is buried in. I mean, there's just 
all sorts of strange coincidences that are hard to explain, but these are, there's no replacement for forensic evidence. And in criminal cases, it's disastrous to, to just rely on circumstantial evidence. Right. Now, you are right about web sleuths. You're absolutely right that there are huge communities of web sleuths that do a tremendous amount of good, even in documentaries on Netflix, like Don't Fuck With Cats, for instance. But speaking of social media, Elisa Lamb has a voice in your documentary because of her online activity and social media and memoirs that she sort of commemorated in digital spaces. Tell me about discovering that, learning about her that way and including it in the film. Yeah, um, you know, it was very important to me to treat her as a three-dimensional human being as much as we could. To me, it's really disrespectful that to, to the victim to kind of just dismiss this whole incident as she was possessed, you know, demonic possession or some dark spirit overtook her or some dark force, you know, and she just, you know, magically disappeared. That trivializes her tragedy and it makes her into a two-dimensional victim as opposed to the three-dimensional human being that she was. And one of the reasons the web sleuths were, were obsessed with this case is that they related to her. And that's what I found so fascinating and why, why I chose the method of using her Tumblr writings to kind of bring her to life because you see her as, you know, a very intelligent young woman who probably had a career as a writer or a journalist because she has a great turn of phrase. There's a rawness and an honesty to her postings. And she's extremely relatable. Where would I be without the internet? I suppose we roam on the internet because we aren't able to find in our physical lives the human connection we need for survival. So we search endlessly, online, alone. We can be empathetic here. Remind people, you are human and they are human. If you just listen, you will understand more. And so we wanted to really end on a, uh, bring it back to her and her experience. And and also f so that people could understand, I'm not here to criticize those web sleuths. I, I'm trying to understand because look, for a banker, uh, you know, a barista, whatever, whatever, the, whatever these people do with it, you know, John Sabani, one of the web sleuths is a dental student for these people to take time out of their lives to be so committed. Um, I, I, you know, it fascinates me. So I wanted to understand why. And one key element to that is the fact that this young woman was so relatable. Um, and so I thought it was important, uh, you know, a lot of true crime and even my Bundy stuff has been criticized for being too focused on the killer. We can talk about that later. I don't agree with that criticism, but, you know, a lot of a lot of true crime has been, you know, tagged with why are you giving a platform to a killer? Why are we talking about the killer? You know, what about the victim? So it was important to me to bring for on many levels to bring the victim, even though it's not a victim in the classic sense, once you see the show. Um, you know, to bring her to life and treat her as a as a three dimensional human being. I agree with you. And I also agree with your take on the Bundy critics, just so you know. Um, one of the things that interests me so much about this, and I mentioned her earlier, is Amy Price, the former manager of the Cecil Hotel. She really is 
kind of the proxy for the hotel itself. She really explains the history of it, but she also talks about kind of the evolution and the experience even of the employees there and how they're just people doing their jobs and to sort of be in the center of the story is like not what they signed up for. But I also understand this as her first time giving an interview about this case, right? Can you talk about her and and what it was like talking with her about this? You know, I only wanted to do this and I told my team, like, if if we don't get some very specific people we we shouldn't do this. You know, the last thing I wanted to do was a rehash of what's been done before. And I think that's what makes the show special. You know, Amy Price, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, you know, hadn't talked to anybody before. Pablo Vigara, the morbid musician who was cyberbullied over this, really took a lot of convincing. Luckily, he was a fan of my Metallica film because he's a, you know, obviously a death metal oh. dude. So that, that opened the door a little bit to at least have conversations with him about it and took some convincing. Um, the hotel employee, Santiago, who found the body, hadn't talked to anybody before. Tim Marsha, the, the lead investigator who we spoke to in the show, um, hadn't talked to anybody before. Um, Jason Tovar, who's the forensic pathologist, had talked to one outlet before, but generally he's been reluctant it was important to get people involved in the story so that we didn't wallow in the cliches of what's been done before and what's been done incorrectly, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Amy, it was critical. Luckily, she, you know, whatever we said <laughs> to make her believe in the integrity of the project. In fact, she, you know, we, we let her see the show um just because she was going to do press. So we felt like she had to see the show. Oh, in advance the, of the, advan- the release? You know, we don't normally, that's we don't rare. normally, yeah, we that's don't normally really show rare. our subjects the show, but since we asked her to, to make herself available for press, I, you know, we all thought it was okay to, to show it to her. Um, and I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, if I can find this text she sent me, she said, uh, oh, I can't express enough how much freedom the ending gave me. I got a call from the previous owner of the hotel and he said, Amy, how could you paint the picture like that based on what he saw in the trailer? I said, this is Amy. I said, just, just wait and watch. You'll see something totally different unfold. The most important thing is that the truth was told and from a man who has a lot of credibility. Hmm. You know, the bottom line is, you know, I think my body of work has a certain level of integrity and our pitch to people was that we didn't want to wallow in the ghost story. We wanted to really you know, talk about what happened because again, I think it's, um, you know, it's not the reason we did the show, but it is the nature of truth. Um, you know, is a subject that has preoccupied me and really has become, you know, a a societal issue. And so this was my way of kind of tipping my hat and telling that story through that lens. Like, what is the truth? Why do people gravitate to things that are strange, but there's no, there's no other corroborating evidence. And I I can't tell you how many murder cases have these strange coincidences that if you had nothing else, um, you know, is reason enough to convict somebody. And then you find out, no, DNA has demonstrated that there's a whole other killer. Um, And so it's actually not as surprising as people, if you spend time in studying criminal cases it's not as surprising 
as you would think that there are all these clusters of circumstantial evidence. That's the whole reason you can't rely on circumstantial evidence. Yes. And letting coincidence be your gun. My husband and I talk about this all the time. We've written several true crime books together and we host podcasts together. And I always say if one of us ends up murdered, 100 percent the last text message we received from the other one would be used as evidence. Absolutely. It's usually perfunctory. It's usually, you know, how could she clearly she had something on her mind when she said, leave me alone. I'm in the studio right now. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, back to Amy, she one of the things I love about her in this film is she's almost like the advocate for the wrongfully accused in that she has so much affection for the hotel. And she's basically telling the audience, like, this is not the hotel's fault. These are all the things you should know about it. And she talks about the warts. She talks about the difficulties of being charged with running that business. She talks about, you know, the employees who worked really hard and the guests could be really difficult. Like, she she really stands up for the Cecil in a way that I found kind of moving. Did you see her that way, too, that she was like an advocate for the Cecil in some ways? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was a force of good in that hotel, you know, she... She walked in with little managerial experience and no hotel experience after she was really initially being hired to do interior design work to show rooms to potential investors. Um, you know, she has a jewelry making and interior design background. Um, and I think Amy saw working at the Cecil kind of as a project. She saw the potential. She saw what she could improve. And, you know, she was dedicated to someone dedicated to low income residents who, who lived there, her staff wanted to create a good experience. The whole the whole stay on Maine phenomenon grew out of a good place. You know, she wanted to like give the place a, you know, a shot in the arm uh, or, or the owners did. It wasn't her sole decision, but she was down for that mission. You know, she still sees potential in the hotel, which she, which she talks about. Like, I, I love her line towards the end where, you know, she's got good bones, which yes. is true. It was a well-built building that has stood the test of time. I wish that hotel a lot of success. I really do. I mean, I think she deserves another chance. I know she could be a showstopper again. And talked about it in a positive way. You know, it's time. It's time. Now, confession, uh, full disclosure, I do know Josh Dean a little bit. He is the person who wrote the article, of course, the journalist that inspired this documentary. He told me, and I would love to know how you pulled this off, that a lot of the post-production in this film, which is very often most of what a viewer sees when they watch a documentary, was done during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In a documentary about a location in particular. I want to know how you pulled that off. And I'm curious to know if you thought it was possible when you no, started doing it. No, was like when this all hit, I, well, I was lucky enough that I had two shows that were largely shot, uh, but we hadn't finished, actually I hadn't started the editing on this. And, um, you know, we, we, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but Netflix was incredible about helping everyone figure out a workflow and radical media, which is uh, the production company where I hang my hat is a very sophisticated um, production company. So, you know, we just figured out a whole other workflow. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I miss the human interaction of sitting in a room and, you know, hashing over the edit with, with the team and figuring things out and, you know, then going back to my office and working on some other aspect of the show. So that communal thing is definitely, you know, something that I, I missed, uh, and, and can't wait to get back to, but 
you know, it, it was interesting. We even had to do some pickup interviews for the show. And I, I suppose it's okay to reveal this, but, um, you know, the interview, it took so long for Pablo to say yes to do the show. He finally agreed deep into the pandemic and he's in Mexico. Um, we felt it was not safe to go down there. Uh, cause this, this was, you know, May, I guess, where people still hadn't figured out exactly how to deal with this stuff. Um, so we thought it was more expedient and safer for everyone to just, uh, hire a local Mexican crew, uh, my DP and production designer and myself, you know, thoroughly walk them through what, what the look is that we wanted. Um, on the day we were all connected by zoom and I had a feed, from the camera. So I could see, I could see what the cameras were seeing. It was a two camera shoot. Um, and my image was put on a iPad, you know, with the right eye line. So, uh, Pablo was, you know, talking to me and I was talking to him in real time and he was talking to the interviewer, meaning me as he normally would in an interview. It was just an, it wasn't just an iPad image. Um, and, uh, I, defy anybody to tell me that they can tell that that was shot that way versus the rest of the material. Although I can tell the one thing that's really interesting that I've noticed, because I've also, we've also started shooting season two of crime scene. We've actually just last week did, did our first round of interviews for season two and all of all, you know, the interviews have been done remotely. Uh, uh, although the crew was on site, I was doing it remotely because I have an additional issue that I have a daughter who's immunocompromised. And so if I were to go on set, I'd have to do even more protocol than everyone else does. And it just, it's easier right now for me to do it remotely. Um, so um, there is some little, I can't explain it. You know, if you look really closely, I think when somebody is talking to an iPad versus a human being, even though my image is there, there something happens with the eyes. There's, it's a slightly more glassy look that if you look really carefully, you can tell there's a, there's a glint in the eye when a human being is talking to a human being that you can really, you know, that you can sense. Um, I, I don't think the viewer is going to sense it, you know, uh, but if you look really closely, there's a slight difference, which I, which I never even dreamed was possible until I actually started looking at footage um, where I was not actually present. So, you know, I think, I think the filmmakers in the crowd would be able to slightly tell, but a lot of interviews are being done this way. So Joe, what can you tell me about how viewers have reacted to the series so far? It's actually been amazing. The response from viewers has been overwhelming. I think people are extremely engaged, whether they know about the Cecil or not. The series immediately jumped to number one in many countries, uh, including the US, UK and Canada, which was really gratifying. And, you know, this is more anecdotal than anything, but people are reaching out to me, friends from around the world who I haven't talked to in years, telling me how cool they think the show is, which I don't get with every film. So there is some great chatter about the show. People, they see we took care to tell Elisa Lamb's story with respect and to explore the history of the hotel with some perspective. So it's been great that people are getting the show. We've had a few snarky reviews and I, I really usually train myself not to look at the reviews, but some of the reviews are presenting the show literally in the exact opposite way that many viewers are perceiving it. So, you know, I scratch my head when I look at all the great social 
uh, media commentary about the show. And then I look at reviews for something that feels like it's a different show. But, you know, people are entitled to their opinion. Was that the reaction you were expecting when you made this film? Um, you know, you never know what, what to expect. But I, I'm so gratified that, you know, so many people are talking about it. That's whether people like the show or not like the show is less important to me than whether it sparks a debate. And, you know, we've sparked a debate about cyberbullying, about the homeless issue in Los Angeles and Skid Row, and most importantly about, you know, not jumping to conclusions based on circumstantial evidence. But we've had some unexpected reaction in that arena, which is, you know, a little disappointing. You know, it's ironic, I guess, that a show that talks about the dangers of cyberbullying is actually attracting some cyberbullying, which is disappointing. There's been some negative reaction directed towards Amy Price, the hotel manager, hmm. on, on social media, which I think she comes across amazingly human and vulnerable and caring in the show. And some people who still want to believe in these conspiracy theories, you know, are basically attacking her like she's holding information back or the hotel somehow was involved, which is, you know, I have to say it's a handful of people, but a handful of people attacking people online who aren't normally in the media like Amy Price. It's, you know, it's been it's been a little unnerving for her. Um, and then the other unfortunate thing that's happened with, again, a handful of viewers, but people have made the incorrect conclusion that the web sleuths that are in our show were the ones who taunted Morbid as the potential killer. And uh-huh. I just want I just want to say for the record, you know, nobody in our show, none of those web sleuths had anything to do with cyberbullying Morbid. So it's especially disappointing since, again, the whole point of the show is don't cyberbully somebody, period, but especially don't jump to conclusions about something based on circumstantial evidence. And a lot of these web sleuths, unfortunately now, have been getting on their social channels a lot of, you know, really intense, mean remarks uh, directed towards them for how dare they cyber bully uh, morbid. <laughs> but the irony is those people who are attacking the web sleuths, first of all, it's unjustified. And secondly, the whole lesson is you shouldn't cyber bully and these viewers are cyber bullying. Again, this is the very small minority. For the most part, nine out of 10 people on social media have been incredibly positive about the show. But when you invite people to be in one of your documentaries, the last thing you want is for them to feel like they've been harassed by viewers. So it's it's unfortunate and hopefully it'll go away. But overall, we're thrilled at how people are really responding to the show. I have a, a sort of a final question about this that relates to another film that we talked about that you made, which was... Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, shortly after that film was released, I can't remember if it was before or after I spoke to you last, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested 11 miles from my house, by the way. And um, I really think your documentary made people care more about Ghislaine Maxwell's arrest and made them more invested in her, you know, receiving the justice that's due, I think, for all of these victims because you put the victims at the center. You did a similar thing here by putting Elisa Lamb at the center, as you talked about. What are you hoping viewers will take away from your film when it comes to this story? What do you want to change in their minds or have them advance in their minds after they watch your film? Um, That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, some of the things that we've talked about here that sometimes things can look like 
a conspiracy when in fact it's just coincidence. And there's no replacement for the sacrosanct search for the truth and jumping to conclusions or going down rabbit holes and assuming something is wrong uh, or amiss or a cover-up or a conspiracy without additional evidence is, is very dangerous. Look, there are plenty of conspiracies that are true. There are plenty of bad actors in many situations. There are many things that are covered up. Khashoggi, you know, that, that had to be investigated and we see something real and terrible happen despite the denials. So the, the, the pressure put on people to tell that story yielded, you know, real answers, but it's equally dangerous to think that, you know, a Jewish space laser is causing California wildfires. And really, you didn't you know, believe and, that, John? <laughs> you know, people <laughs> believe lots of wacky stuff now. And, and I think this show demonstrates that even in a true crime tale, how circumstances can be twisted to tell a false narrative. And so as a documentarian who for decades has been, you know, in the truth business, to me, that's the most important takeaway. Um, and of course, the other important takeaway is to remember that Elisa Lam was a vibrant, full-fledged human being whose life was cut way too short, who had lots of potential. And she, you know, sadly died of a tragic accident and confluence of circumstances. And in order to honor her life and to respect her, you have to be truthful about what happened to her and to dismiss her as the victim of a spooky ghost story or some wacky tuberculosis conspiracy trivializes who she is as a human being. I'm not a professional depressed person. I am so much more than that. I am very lucky. I do have amazing, beautiful things in my life. I am so very full of love. I certainly think you accomplished all of that. Joe Berlinger, I can't wait for season two of Crime Scene, but thank you so much for talking to me about season one, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. I really enjoyed it, and I can't wait to watch more of it. Cool. Always a pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Joe Berlinger. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>